Hello and welcome to Kaleidoscope. This is Michael Zenon recording from our virtual studio and with me I have Susanna Pavlou, who's the director of the Mediterranean Institute of Gender Studies and Mine Adli who's a project coordinator of Kayad. And to, this recording is also done within the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. So these two women are ideal candidates for speaking about gender-based violence. Welcome, ladies. Hello, Magda. Hi, Magda. Thank you for Hi. having us. It's always a pleasure to speak to you two because you know so much and you're feisty. <laughs> <laughs> you come um, right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to start about talking, not start, the, the topic we want to cover is gender-based violence as it relates to the custody of children during a divorce or a separation. And this was covered quite extensively by the Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women and Girls, Its Causes and Consequences, Reem Al-Salam, and she submitted a report to the Human Rights Council in Geneva in July of this year. And she talks about the link between gender-based violence and custody. Let me, who wants to open the conversation? Because there's something so close to my heart, I don't even know where to start. Hmm. I mean, I, I'm okay to start if, if that's okay with Susanna. Sure, go uh, ahead, Mina. First of all, uh, we really appreciate Reem Al-Salam's work because um, actually she's uh, put in writing and put in a report, something that has really hurt so many women across the globe, not just Cypriot women, not just Turkish-speaking, Greek-speaking uh, separate women, but women across the globe are affected by this because uh, in family courts there is a huge emphasis on the, um, the, the, the high benefits of the child. And uh, what happens is a lot of the time domestic violence and domestic violence contexts are put, are shadowed basically by this context. And what that means, I'll give a concrete example. So in domestic violence, we experience this uh, phenomenon where the uh, perpetrator is constantly undermining the, the survivor. So he will say, this, so what will happen is it can be nine o'clock at night and it will be bedtime, for example, and there'll be a seven-year-old child uh, in that context. And the um, mother will say, come on, it's bedtime now. And the mother will say to the child, no, my king doesn't need to go to sleep now, talking about his seven-year-old. And... Um, he will constantly undermine the survivor, call her names, um, basically do whatever he can to undermine her confidence. And then eventually um, in family courts, uh, they will ask the child, who do, you, who do you want to stay with? Who would you prefer to live with? And the child thinks, I'd prefer to stay with my father. And that is um, ultimately what is considered in family courts um, in custody cases. And uh, domestic violence is completely um, undermined as, as um, a form of violence that really affects the survivor. And we experience this problem. And for the first time, we have an international report that actually pinpoints this and talks about the horrific things that survivors have to go through uh, in court um, when it comes to custody proceedings. As I does this does make a difference if there have been reports, complaints at the police station about domestic violence from the, the survivor? Absolutely not. The Istanbul Protocol states clearly that any violence that's perpetrated in front of a child is considered violence against a child. 
But unfortunately, um, in our private laws, in our family laws um, across the the globe, um, this does not infiltrate and it's not reflected in family courts the way that it should be. It does not weigh uh, the amount of weight that it should do. Savannah, what's your opinion? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, uh, it, it really is a huge issue. And I, and I think, uh, you know, and I've said this before, that the WAVE network, which is the largest network of women's organizations and, and frontline uh, specialist services for women, victims, survivors, and their children, uh, have, have put this as, as one of their top priorities in addressing, uh, actually in the last few years. And so, as Mina said, um, the report by um, Reem Al-Salem was sort of pivotal, you know, as a tool um, for these organizations, um, like an advocacy tool for these organizations to continue pushing for implementation of Article 31 of the Istanbul Convention, because Mina, uh, as Mina said quite rightly, um, the Istanbul Convention has a very sort of child-competent, child-sensitive um, uh, approach. Right? So on the one hand, it says that violence perpetrated where the child is a witness um, is violence against the child. So in, in the Republic of Cyprus, we have this in our domestic violence law, right? So this is number one. I would say, I would go a step further and I would say any violence perpetrated against the mother of a child in their presence or uh, not in their presence is violence against the child. Because when a child grows up in a violent, hostile um, uh, atmosphere, right, or context, uh, where coercive and controlling behavior is taking place, it will always affect the child. Because it will also undermine, as Mine said, the relationship between the child and his or her mother. So, so I mean, this is really a huge um, uh, um, challenge uh, that women uh, and their children uh, are facing uh, because it's, it's not only a risk factor for the mother, it is a risk factor for the child. And there have been cases that have gone all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights where children have been killed in the context of domestic violence and in the context of custody uh, of um, family court decisions that grant uh, visitation custody uh, to a violent father. So, <coughs> so excuse me. <coughs> so, the other the other article of the Istanbul Convention, uh, um, Article Thirty One, says that violence against women must be taken into account in family court decisions around child custody. And this is not taking place. This is not being enforced. And it's not being enforced in the Republic of Cyprus either, where we have um, uh, um, ratified the Istanbul Convention and actually um, uh, developed a pretty comprehensive law uh, to cover all of the provisions of the Istanbul Convention. This provision was not transposed. Tell me, why is it so difficult to get the law or the people that implement these decisions to understand what the effects of domestic violence have on the child? Why is it so difficult for them to understand that the child draws in or by osmosis hears or learns or um, replicates things 
and it's bad for them. Or sometimes they internalize them. A lot of times they internalize them. Why is it so difficult to get the lawmakers to understand this? That when you do a custody um, agreement, you have to have the child at the center. Well, I think it's exactly that that, that um, we, we have a problem with. I mean, I have a problem with um, because what we need to, what there needs to be um, a, a strong understanding of is the fact that if the primary caregiver of the child is okay, the child will be okay. And mm. this concept is entirely undermined, I think, by all social structures, by, um, by legislators um, and by interpreters of the law. So what there there is this kind of notion that that um, somehow magically a child will be absolutely fine if the mother is uh, beaten and depressed and constantly abused psychologically. I mean, how can a, if 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 somebody's being um, uh, exposed to violence on a daily basis, getting out of bed is hard enough, let alone being a good efficient caring, funny, fun, enjoyable mother. Mm. These are all very difficult things for a mother to be. And then we have these kind of pseudo uh, fake, completely fake um, father's rights uh, coin uh, terms that are that have been coined like parental alienation and things like this, mm. um, which basically completely try and deter us from the actual issue, which is domestic violence, which is, as Susanna quite rightly pointed out, Question and uh, and control, and sorry, I have, to, I have to interrupt. I remember when I was getting a divorce, I had a really good lawyer, and he's when I was worried about leaving Greece and coming to Cyprus and what it would do to my son. His only comment to me was, "If you are okay, your son is okay. So don't think about how your son's going to be. Think how you are going to be." And I think that was experience talking, mm. and uh, unfortunately, we haven't been able to really implement that understanding in court processes, in in social services uh, services, and all of the other uh, shareholders that stakeholders that need to that need to react the way that they do. I think if we grasp that understanding, then a lot more children will be safer, and a lot more women will be safer. Um, we, well, I can give you a concrete example in Northern Cyprus. We don't have a domestic violence legislation. And we're kind of we're lobbying and advocating for this domestic violence legislation to be put in place. And there is such a huge backlash against it. And an answer to your question would be that uh, violence against women and women's rights is a peripheral issue. The power and control is currently in the hands of the man. Mm. They have they have the power and they don't want to share the power. I think the reason why it's so difficult for them to accept these rights is because they don't want to let go of some of the power in their hands. And I would say that a lot of these people that are um, kind of uh, vetoing the legislations, are vetoing policies that will provide better services for, for survivors of violence, I think they are perpetrators themselves. And I can say this very comfortably. Um, and I think that, that they are quite happy with the status quo. They are quite happy with the statistics that one in three women are exposed to domestic violence, that women are being killed. I mean, we're a small island, and if we tackle the problem um, according to the in line with the guidance of the Istanbul Protocol, we can save a lot of lives, and we can we can make uh, Cyprus um, a safer place for all women to to live in. But the the fact that we're not doing that is is through lack of political will, I would say, and we can see this on both sides of the island, unfortunately. Because you had about two or three years ago, you had a series of femicides, public femicides. 
in the north? I cannot give you um, a statistic for the femicides in the north because there was an incident that I was involved in where the last words that the woman used was enough, enough, help. That, that They were the last words that were heard, spoken from her mouth. She shouted, enough, enough, help. And then she died. And the police, after 24 hours, said to me, we have no other suspicion other than suicide in 24 hours. And my question to them was, how much of an investigation could you have carried out in 24 hours to conclude that it was a suicide? What did you do? What could you mm. have possibly done in 24 hours? And they said, we have no suspicion, no suspicion other than suicide. And that case, we pursued it. We we created campaigns. We went and did the work that the police should have done. And then eventually um, the guy was convicted for 30 years for murder. And then it was upheld. But this is just one of the cases that we were able to access. I mean, what about all these other women who have been um, who have p perhaps been killed, who could have been, it could have been femicides and here they've been put down in a statistic as suicide. Suzanne, and what's the uh, approach on the South, in the South? I think that, I think that, I think here, um, I think there's a lot of things going on. I think uh, on the one hand, um, as something that Mina mentioned um, earlier on is uh, our lack of understanding around what is in, what is the best interest of the child and what is in the best interest of the child, right? And we have a widely held belief in Cyprus that to have contact with both parents uh, is in the best interest of the child. And that might be the case, right, when there is no domestic violence involved. In cases of domestic violence, Contact with the violent father is not always in the best interest of the child. And it certainly isn't in the best interest of, of uh, the survivor. And so one could see it, and, and, and it's often portrayed as a conflict of rights, right? So um, it's, the it's, the, uh, in, it's in the best interest of the child to have contact with the, uh, uh, with the violent father. Um, and... Um, and uh, oh, but this conflicts with the uh, with the victim survivor's right uh, to live free from violence because violence, particularly coercive and controlling behavior, continues even after separation and often um, uh, through the child, right? Through child contact um, uh, arrangements, child, yes. right? Um, and 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 so I think there's a lack of understanding around what is in the best interest of the child, and as Mina said, and you said. Um, if the nonviolent parent is uh, is 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 okay, the child will be okay. In fact, I would go a step further and say that it is the most important protective factor in a child's life is that the nonviolent parent, the non-offending parent, is well, is safe, is protected, right? Because then the child will be safe and protected. So I think that, that it's that on the one hand, and then it's plain old traditional gender stereotypes, right? Exactly. It's so much, so, you know, there is this fear that, oh, but if we do that, um, if we take domestic violence reports into consideration in child custody, then all these women will be going to court claiming that they're victims of domestic violence so that they, uh, they, they can um, withhold, um, withhold uh, contact 
between the, the, the father and the child. And that is, it, it is, it is not the case. It is not the case. So it's so much easier for the courts, for social services, for the police to be, believe a woman is lying rather than actually do a proper risk assessment to ensure the safety of that of that mother and, and, and the child. So I, I think, uh, and I think these gender stereotypes have been shown uh, in courts, have, have been shown, there's, there's a, a wealth of research, not taking place in Cyprus, but in other contexts. Because as Mina said, this is, is, this is an issue that is being experienced in family, women are experiencing in family courts across the globe. And that's mm. why um, Reem's report is, is so important because it shows how um, <clears throat> this, is, this is not an isolated issue. Um, and, and there's research that has shown, uh, how, um, uh, you know, family court decisions and, and, and family courtrooms are a context whereby women experience discrimination, uh, and gender stereotyping, right? Um, I mean, if we take parental alienation as one example, there is research that shows that when women use parental alienation in family courts, right, to get custody of their children, they're more likely to lose custody. When okay. men use parental alienation in family courts They'll in win. order to access their child, they're more likely to win, you know, contact or custody and so on. So, I mean, it's, uh, and this is, it's not one piece of research. I mean, there's research been that, that has been conducted in the UK, in the US, there's clearly shown this, right? So, I think so. It's, and I think that's taking place in Cyprus across the island, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and, and and with tragic consequences. Right? Tell um, me about beyond the, the most, the worst consequence. And I don't even want to think about either the, the protective parent or the child getting murdered. What other effects can, can a violence in the family have on the child? And I'm sure I know it does depend on the age and the sensitivity of each child. But what are the kind of effects that can it can have on the child? I mean, there are a lot of repercussions on the child um, of domestic violence. Uh, there's uh, evidence that suggests, suggests that children that are exposed to domestic violence um, suffer from uh, medical conditions such as ADHD and ADD uh because of the way that they their brains are conditioned to store uh trauma or to receive and respond to trauma. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. ADD and trauma. Okay. Um uh, the, and you know in addition um obviously a lot of um anxiety and stress um is related to domestic violence. Um children are exposed to this. We have witnesses coming and talking about um a lot of um high level anxiety levels and stress levels that can actually physically uh, impact a child's uh, well-being, their growth, their hormones, um, a lot of kidney diseases and, and a lot of other organ diseases that are related to stress uh, can come about. Why, why, why kidney? Is the kidney um, very yeah, I mean, this is just evidence that, um, that, that we've, we've heard in courts. Um, any, basically, stress is something that affects, affects all organs in your body, including your brain. Um, okay. So it can cause a lot of uh, permanent um, damage to to your body physically, physiolog physiologically as well. And also, if a child is exposed to domestic violence, they model um, a lot of the time. They model the behavior of the perpetrator, especially in a young adolescent men, boys, yes. um, who they they do not consider the the victim, the survivor, 
as a role model because that's the weak person in that they see is the person they don't aspire to be like they aspire to be like the the one the who is dead. The, yeah the, the one that is the perpetrating the violence who does have the power who does have the control um whose decisions are the ones that are implemented um the stronger one basically in the relationship they're the ones that they aspire to and a lot of times when i've seen that women have um i've witnessed this where women have uh been deterred from um striving for custody uh and then i've been called 10 years later 5 years later 7 years later asking for help with the child's criminal case because they have perpetrated violence against their girlfriends or or their spouses they've they've got involved in other violent behavior because they have been conditioned uh by their primary caregiver because the courts have decided uh, on custody to the to the perpetrator for the perpetrator or the, or somehow that's been an out of court settlement uh and they have modeled that behavior as the way that 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 life ought to be well i i mean you can see it all around you with these macho young boys acting like they macho dad because it's it appears to be strong and it appears to be cool and it gets them what they want so it's a, a purely power replication um tell me uh you also have a helpline in the north yes i mean it's it's unfortunately because we don't have a domestic violence legislation um and the istanbul protocol is ratified for whatever that means for, for northern cyprus it doesn't really mean much um but we only have we have one helpline that's only run by one person one staff member basically so if she's in the toilet or you know or, or just unavailable uh, the helpline won't work um and the help services that are available are very limited actually um in the north as well again because of the the lack of domestic violence legislation again i agree 100% with susanna has said the gender stereotypes they're very prominent in, in the northern part of cyprus uh turkish uh, is a language um that has an idiom that states it's the female bird that makes the nest okay. uh, i don't know if you have something similar to that in greek so you know these are all and kol kırılır yen içinde kalır which means you know if there's if there's um well it literally translates as if your uh, arm breaks uh, you the, the bone stays inside like you don't disclose the private okay. information that happens in the home outside you don't um, put out your dirty laundry we have a, an english saying similar to yeah. that as well but so, i would you know another conversation we've had and sorry to interrupt you sena is that for for women to actually go call the helpline they usually it's usually takes them more than one effort to leave the home Okay it's not I've made the decision and I'm going I've made the call and I'm going it's a really hard draining often painful decision to leave so without social services or a good helpline the women in the north are less protected than the women in the south although in the south they have similar problems I mean globally this is an issue and I'll, I'll quickly say this and and pass the floor to Susanna but um the FRA's uh, latest statistics on this issue shows that a woman will be uh, exposed to physical violence 37 times before she makes the step to call the police or call the social to call any kind of support service that 37 times 37 times it'll be the 38th time that she will actually go to the police or to any kind of support services so it's it's vital it's vital that when she does make that move because there are so many barriers mm. to making that first call so many barriers even practical things like thinking about who's going to give the pocket money of the child to go to school the next day from very practical issues to 
very in-depth issue, issues relating to your self-confidence to, to the to the idea a perpetrator will convince the survivor that she does not have the power she does not have the strength to to live without the perpetrator and there's a lot of things involved uh, in this like love bombing and you know a lot of things that involved in the dynamics of domestic violence that I won't go into but basically there are a lot of challenges before the woman makes the first step so once she does make the first step it's vital for those support services to take that call to take that exactly. plea for help and do whatever they need to do to make sure that she doesn't go back to that violent place which is the home okay susanna yeah and just to pick up from where uh sort of or add on to what Mina has been saying, you know, there's a, a, you know, when we talk about coercive controlling behavior, which is basically what Mina has, has, you know, sort of captured, you know, you, you I, as you were speaking, you know, it was, it was a picture in front of me of this is precisely what coercive controlling behavior is, right? And most domestic violence is precisely that. And Ethan Stark, he's a, he's a researcher in the US who was looking at, um, statistics that showed that there was symmetry in domestic violence uh, among uh, women and men, right? And he wanted to challenge that. So he started to look a little bit deeper. What, 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 how do women experience violence differently uh, in, 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 in the family uh, than men? And, 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 and he's the one that coined the term coercive and controlling behavior, right? Uh, other, other researchers have called it intimate terrorism, right? And, and there's a quote uh, in his book, that, that I find very, very telling. And it says, more or less, so I might be misquoting, but more or less, um, saying that it is more about, it is not what he does to her. It is what he stops her from doing for herself, right? Okay. And and this is the, yep. the, the disempowerment, right? That, that, that is a result of sort of, uh, you know, years of this type of, 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 um, of, of domestic abuse, I would say, because I think abuse just shows the, the longevity of it, right? How, how it, it's something that is continuous, taking place 24 hours a day. You know, domestic violence is not incidents. It's not, it happened today and it might happen next week. You know, it's women living in terror 24 hours a day. So I think, um, if, I have always have this it's image precise, of a woodpecker chipping away exactly, constantly. Exactly. That's the exactly. image perfect. of it. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And and I think that it's it's precisely that. What we need is to when when women make that call, that first call is when we bring her into the system, right? We bring her into the system. There's no, you know, when we talk about risk assessment. You know, we often think, okay, let's prioritize cases. Is she in danger? No, she's not. Okay, let's leave her, right? We'll wait for the next call. No. Risk assessment is to, regardless of the level of risk she might be at that given moment, you know, it, it all the screening, you know, these calls to the helplines, call to the police is about bringing her in, right? Mm. Because it will be, it won't, maybe it won't be 37. If we bring her in and we provide those services tailored to her specific case, like what does she need? Right. Mm. Does she need housing? Does she need money? Does she need um, does she need a job? Does she need childcare? Does she need a ride? You mm. know, does she need that. a ride? You know, um, all of these things. Then it might not be 37 calls. It might be 15, you know, <laughs> she actually needs to know she's not alone. That's the whole point. So the next time something happens, 
She's, you know, we often put the the, the sort of the, the 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 weight of the decision on her. You know, we say, oh, she doesn't want to leave. Oh, why doesn't she leave? Why doesn't she protect her children? Why doesn't she do this? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so we often the focus of our attention is usually on what she is not doing rather than what she is doing. Right. Those little those tiny decisions that women make daily under the, uh, in this context to protect herself and her children. It's all, it's all strategic. It's all minutely calculated because she's trying to keep herself safe and her child safe, right? And instead of recognizing that, rewarding her for that, right? And saying, that must be, you know, it's as simple as that must have been so difficult for you or that was very brave of you or mm-hmm. I, 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 I recognize what you've been doing all of this time to keep your child and yourself safe. Um, whereas we keep on calling out what she hasn't done. Yes. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You know, and and I think we really it's and and all that takes really is sort of a shift in in perspective, right? A shift in approach. I think it's what um, Benet said earlier. We that sheer thing of getting out of bed when you've been abused in the next morning, actually making that move and opening your eyes and stepping out of bed because there's a child that needs to be hugged or to be fed. And I don't think people understand or don't choose to understand the magnitude of the confidence breaking that abuse does, especially this chipping at your confidence all the time, that you're not good enough, you're not good looking enough, you're not clever enough. But um, what can we do about it? What can we do to change this? I mean, I know you do so much, both of you and your organizations, but we need to, we really need to protect everyone. Or give everyone I think we the just, mechanism. We, we need to talk about it more. We need to talk about the pressures on a woman uh, to be in a relationship. I mean, when we look at advertisements, um, kitchen utensils, uh, fridges, ovens, um, cars, ev- everything that is sold to us, everything that's advertised to us, is actually advertised through uh, a romantic relationship. Okay. And um, if you, for you to be successful as a woman, you need to be in a relationship. If you're single, you're unsuccessful. You can be the most successful person in the world, academically, career-wise. Um, you know, you can earn a lot of money. You can live in a brilliant home. If you're single, the community will consider that you're unsuccessful. the The prevalence of that changes according, maybe slightly according to which country you live in. But generally, I would say that's a global issue. Mm. There's a huge pressure on us. Uh, to be in a relationship and we all want i mean it's an it's a very natural desire to want to be in a relationship where you're loved uh and where where somebody's showing you some affection and some compassion and and a a little bit of love right so first of all we need to understand as women and we need to show solidarity um about how how prominent that is in in our minds and just to, to just really be um a bit more kinder to each other when we're when we're judging um women victim blaming is not just a problem that we have in cyprus it's something it's a global phenomenon and the first question that we ask when we hear about this horrible horrific violence is why didn't why doesn't she leave we need to find ways to shift that question to why is he doing this why is he perpetrating that violence you know not how how is it that she's in that relationship, but how is it that he can still continue to perpetrate that violence despite the number of chances that she has given him? Shift the focus onto to what he has done. Because actually as society, what we're doing is we're reflecting and we're imitating his behavior because that's exactly what he does. 
he shifts the blame onto the woman. It's always her fault. The common denominator of all perpetrators is that he will shift responsibility to the woman. You know that I don't like the sound of that vacuum cleaner and you still switch it on. You know that I don't like uh, to hear yelling and, you know, that's why. You you should know what I'm like. Don't you know what I'm like? She is always at fault. But actually, the truth is she can be, you know, we have a Turkish saying, you can be on a handstand and catch a bird with your mouth. Uh, and she would still um, be, be exposed to violence. She would still be at fault. It's not her fault at all. But we need to somehow uh, find ways to shift that rhetoric and to to shift the focus onto his behavior, not hers. And I agree with you. This, this, but you also need to create a space where women are comfortable enough to share the story. Because a lot of this shaming, or the shame, the internalized shame, I feel because I wasn't strong enough, or why did I say no? There's a lot of shame, and I wasn't good enough to stand up to this person. I wasn't good enough to match his expectations. We need to find a way for them to come out and say it's okay. Stop, as you said, don't be hard on yourself. Don't overjudge yourself. You're good enough. You're enough. Not you're good enough. You're enough. Um, Susanna, what do you think? Okay, I agree with everything that uh, that Mina said. You know, I think um, it's convenient that I, mean, I often agree with everything that Susanna has said. <laughs> it's very convenient. I know. I know, right? <laughs> um, you're cutting the conversation think, in half. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think. You know, I, I, there's a lot of things, you know, we, we, we are doing a lot. I, I want to sort of highlight because I think it's a brilliant initiative that um, the Association for the Prevention and Handling of Domestic Violence in Cyprus. And uh, I, we did a, another podcast uh, with Magda um, uh, very yeah. recently with Andrea Androniku um, uh, on the same issue. Um, and uh, SPAVO, which is the association, has have just um, launched uh, an awareness raising campaign. It's called 31 Now making reference to the to Article 31 of the Istanbul Convention, uh, which is precisely on this issue. And um, and, and I and I, I would I would encourage everyone to to sort of look it up and and uh, look at their posts on social media and, and share and reshare because I think we need to raise awareness, number one. Um, uh, so we can really understand what the impact of domestic violence is on women and children. Uh, and uh, I think uh, I mean, social services is really key. I think I think it's not only a lack of response, but even when there is a response to uh, domestic violence uh, survivors, uh, we we don't have the services that they need. Right. So I think uh, we need to really invest in those services that women actually need. And women, yes, they need access to shelters. Right. So we put a lot of emphasis on that. But if you ask them, right, they, they they want a lot of other things as well, right? If you mm. ask them, you know, do you, do you, do you need shelter, or you know, if if you, they if they could, you know, sort of um, uh, do a multiple choice question, right? It, I think they would say all of the above. Yes, we need accommodation, right? But they're looking more long term, right? They want a uh, job. What, I need a job. I need childcare. I need um, I need financial support temporarily, perhaps. Uh, I need vocational training. I need whatever it is. I think that a lot of these services, which are tailored to to women uh, who are experiencing domestic violence, are, are are lacking. And so I think we need to do a lot 
a lot more needs to be invested in our social services uh, in Cyprus. And then I would also say, so I mean, there's a lot I can recommend, uh, but um, I, I would also say that uh, we need to shift our uh, approach, as, as Mina said. We need to start holding perpetrators accountable and stop blaming women. Right. And that it's not only in within society, but but within because these attitudes permeate all of our institutions. Right. They permeate mm. the family courts, judges, the judiciary, uh, prosecutors, the police, the social services. That, do you know what I mean? I, I think I think really we need to 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 shift our focus on holding perpetrators accountable. Uh, looking at their patterns of behavior. I mean, another quote, again, which is not mine, but it was by uh, sort of David Mandel. He's from the Safe and Together Institute. He said, um, domestic abuse is a parenting choice, right? And that's, a, that's another sort mm. of a, a quote that sticks with me. It is a parenting choice. He made that choice, right? And instead of blaming mothers for being terrible uh, at, at parenting because they didn't, they didn't take the decisions you know, that in your mind would have kept her, her herself and her child safe. We need to look at what the perpetrator is doing um, uh, to threaten that child and, and, and his family, right? And, and hold them accountable. Uh, and they should not be rewarded with custody rights. <laughs> and I agree. I think it's, um, we, as Minna said earlier, we need to put the focus on what he's doing wrong and not on what she didn't do. Or did okay, and we exactly. need to remember, and we need to remember that anything children see within the household has a direct effect on them. Good or bad, it has an effect on them in different ways, and in a lot of cases, it's long term. In a lot of cases, it's long term. Just as I, just out of interest, what if what are the signs of domestic violence for an outsider? What are the signs that people can be looking for? So, besides the bruising think, and the think, obvious yeah i mean i think um other than uh, i think the, the um first of all we need to think about what the signs are for the survivor to to notice because forget outsiders even when we're in a relationship in a violent relationship sometimes we can't see the red flags at the beginning because of this love bombing that happens at the beginning you know uh, a common um characteristic that uh, perpetrators have is that they at the beginning of the relationship they're they're wonderful lovers so they'll make you feel like you're the most amazing woman on the planet you know you're you're so gorgeous and and you're so intelligent and you're so wonderful and it's just the best relationship in the world and then um slowly they will start to uh show red flags the red flags will start to show in the relationship and it's important for the survivor to notice that as well as other people um a lot of there are a lot of them. Uh, one of them, for example, is isolation that can be easily seen. So um, a survivor uh, will be isolated from her friends and her family. She'll have great networks, great friendships, uh, good, strong relationships with her family members. And then um, the perpetrator, he won't do it as overtly. He will not say something like, I do not want you to see your mother again. That's not how it works. What mm. he'll do is he'll say, oh, it's interesting that your mom... Um, you know, she'll give pocket money to your sister's children, but not yours. Why is that? Do you think, you know, she likes them more? Um, or she'll say things like, your mom's really judgmental about you. She's not, she doesn't do that about, you know, your your sisters. Why, why does she do that about you? 
or like we all argue with our family members and then we tell our spouses and then if the guy is siding with um um you rather than the family members or rather than providing um an objective uh approach uh say things like, oh really did your sister really do that or did your mom really do that oh that's terrible you know they that's really bad i can't believe they would do that to you you know uh and again with friends like i've heard a lot of things about that person if you spend time with that person or even just like if you spend time with your friend drinking coffee and you come home uh, and then they'll stop talking to you or they'll have a frown on their face and at the end of the day you think you know my my lover uh frowning you know i don't want my lover to be in a bad mood i'd rather just stop speaking to my friend altogether you know just little little things like this so this is isolation and then we can notice behaviors towards a child we can notice when us uh, when a survivor is in a relationship and the child is being used and susanna was spot on uh, on the custody issue you know we there are issues where the case has been finished um and there are visitation rights and the perpetrator will use that tiny little space those visitation rights for example to keep perpetrating the violence so mm. he will um uh, if she's, she can't give the child for two hours, for example, she's two hours late, he'll go and report it to the police, he'll file a case. Um, and in all these situations, what we can do, the best thing that we can do when we notice these things happening and all, all of the things that are in the cycle of abuse, uh, economic violence. Uh, so if we notice that a woman or if we are the survivor, we're in a relationship and, uh, for example, economic violence, it doesn't work how it used to. Economic violence, the way it used to work was a man would say to the woman, you can't work. I don't want you to work, right? Now it doesn't work that way. Now it's a, it's, it's um, a lot more discreet. What will happen is the woman's wage will be allocated to all of the things that the, the family outgoings that are fixed every month. So, for example, a child's um, school fee or the electricity bill or, you know, all of these um, fees that are fixed that mm. are around the same every month. They are the ones that the survivor's wage will cover. And all of the ones that are a bit more flexible are the ones that the man will cover, for example. That's the, that's economic violence as well. And it might not be so easy to see, to spot, because at the end of the day, you feel like oh, I have an income. He has an income. His income is being uh, spent on the family outgoings. My income is as well. So it can it can look equal. But if you're in that, if, if you're, you know, if there's a survivor listening to this now or if you have a friend and you know that she has an income but somehow she doesn't have any flexible income she doesn't have any income left to be able to use on things like buying herself a t-shirt or going for a coffee then then you can you know raise awareness but i think the the main point of what we can do what you know what the signs are is power and control it's about how you feel so even if it's really difficult to put your finger on it uh what the violence is sometimes it's very difficult to do that but it's about how that makes you feel. Do you feel comfortable? Are you comfortable in your own home? Do you comf feel comfortable to say what you want to say? Do you feel comfortable to wear what you want to wear? Go home or, or move around, you know, your mobility. Are you comfortable? Do you feel comfortable to this? Or, or is there constantly like a pressure on you to act in a different way other, mm. to what, other than the way that you want to act? I think that's the main, the red sign. And it, for the survivor and for people around her, I think that's the main red flag. But I think the most important issue here that I'm hearing is that, that we've got to find a way that the people experiencing the gender-based violence are actually put into the mode of picking up the signs of what's not acceptable or what's hurting them or what's 
um, <clears throat> making them feel uncomfortable or what's hurting yeah, just, them. Yes, just to add, uh, just to add uh, to that, Magda is, is just to add, uh, you know, just to point out that this is this takes, this is these are behaviors that uh, that um, escalate over time, right? So as Mina said, you know, it starts with little things, right? But and and that's how it's it's it's, it's as you said, which I, I love the the um, the example, this chipping away at, right? It, it is it's precisely that. It, it it's the little things. Oh, you know, uh, you know, all the examples that that um, that that Mina used, and then and then it, until until it's it's blatant sort of you know she is no longer visiting her family she is no longer going out she is rushing home uh, to ensure that she's home when when uh, uh he when, before home. he does before he does and she doesn't know why she she's just terrified right and and she cannot even name it right and you say but but why are you in a rush you know no big deal just call him and you'll uh, no 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 um you know it's, it's that kind of thing that um that you know it that's why it's so sort of um difficult to 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 pinpoint for the even for the survivor herself because it's something that's taken place over time and has accumulated and, and sort of escalated over time to a point where she can no longer uh, make decisions for herself right I mean I think about it and it, I think it's one of the things that actually eats at my stomach so regular all the time because I've been in a similar position and everyone used to say to me, well, why don't you leave you strong? I said, this didn't happen overnight. This didn't happen overnight. Something's got to happen to jar you to leave. Anyway, um, we get towards the end of this conversation. Um, I want both of you, each of you, to give me a suggestion of what you think we can do practically to, besides raising awareness to the women, or making space for the women to tell their stories. What can we do to pressurize the state to actually listen to the fact that children draw in all this violence and it's actually not going to create healthy citizens long-term? Well, um, I think expert organizations uh, like MIGS and Kayad and Spavo, uh, they need more support. So uh, as citizens, you know, d d active citizens uh, listening to this podcast and people who, you know, really feel like these issues resonate to them and they, they want to do something about their own relationship and also um, support the cause, uh, the first step would be to follow these organizations and look at what they're saying, share them, help us disseminate them. Uh, because a lot of the time we rely 100% on the community to uh, take ownership of our campaigns and to share them and to disseminate the information that we're giving. And the second one is, as women, to share our own experiences. I mean, I when I talk about my domestic violence experience, I see people rolling their eyes. I see people, you know, thinking, why is Mina sharing this? You know, why does she milk the fact that she was uh, she is a victim, she is a survivor? Uh, but we just need to keep doing it, basically, uh, because to, to break the taboo around the fact that it's so uh, extensive and it's just it, it just happens, occurs so often. Every woman that we know, including ourselves, at one point in our lives will be exposed to domestic violence. And that fact needs to just be put out there constantly. We need to share our own stories and uh, give a shoulder to other women that are also sharing their stories. OK, totally agree with you there about sharing and that could, could happen to anyone. It's not something that happens to other people only. Um, Susanna? 
Yeah, I don't know how to top that, but uh, <laughs> I, maybe I would just re-emphasize what uh, um, Minette's first point is that, you know, there are organizations who are, are really doing um, uh, a lot of work uh, to raise awareness on this issue, but not just to raise awareness, train professionals, you know, uh, have discussions like uh, we're having with you today, Magda, and thank you so much for for having us and, and allowing us to to get this message uh, out to to the community, and it's and precisely what Wayne. Mina said. And to thank and, Wayne regranting well, well, program. Absolutely, exactly. I, I mean, it's it's exactly that that Wave, uh, the Wave Network, um, uh, gave us this opportunity to Kayad and Migs to work together, which is something that we rarely have the opportunity to do, uh, and not because we don't want to, um, uh, to do joint activities and really. Um, and really get our message out. And, and, and the message being is that domestic violence and violence against women is, is an issue that women are, all Cypriot women are facing, regardless of the language that they speak or the religion um, that they're born into. So um, uh, I, I would really encourage everyone to sort of look us up, uh, follow us on social media and, and help us get the message out because um uh, you know, it, it's it's often very lonely. That's why we 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 so much enjoy doing things together. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's often very lonely doing this work on our own, right? And the more support we have from the community, I think it, it can send a very powerful message to the powers that be that action needs to be taken on this issue. Okay, I'll agree with you both. I think the government's or really to take more seriously the contribution civil society is making, and especially these specialized organizations. And they can't do it unless they support it in some way. And I agree with you, Mine. This burden on civil society to disseminate your information, it shouldn't just be your community or civil society. It should be something that's done more broadly because gender-based violence affects us all. We either been a victim or we know someone who's been a victim or we know of someone that's died. So to me, that's a very, tra when you think of it, it's really tragic and there is no more pressing issue. So I want to thank you both because I'm always inspired when I'm with you and you always know you've got my support. So thank you both. Likewise, Magda. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for this conversation and to many more because we cannot have this conversation, conversation often enough. It needs to get out the message. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The first trilingual podcast station of Cyprus, Island Talks, open, diverse, free.